Thank you, Tony. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I haven't said anything important yet, so. But I might. <laughs> I might yet tonight. Now I was just saying what we're doing tonight. We're trying to talk about the book of Mark. Uh, but I was thinking about, like last week, I wasn't sure what we're going to do. I thought about doing Colossians, but I actually taught Colossians. I mean, it's right here. There's video on Sermon Audio of me teaching right here. So that would have been the last two years because we finished. We were in Colossians when we left Valley and came here on Sunday mornings. Okay. So then that's what I re- realized. I thought, well, we just finished Colossians. So, and, and we haven't done, and I thought about several other things. I've taught through John, uh, but that was 2005, 2006. I taught through Matthew, which was, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago. I've never taught straight through Mark, and so we're going to do Mark. Uh, it's, it's, it's a uh, great book for a variety of reasons because there's some background on it on why it was written and church fathers address it. Um, it's also uh, a short, condensed version of the Gospels. And um, we'll talk why and how it's you know, unique. Uh, there's some questions on when it was written or what comes first. Some think... And I'm not going to be able. To, I'm not going to be able to answer these questions. I, I'm going to. I'm going to give you some information. I'll share some opinions that I've got, but I'm not sure my opinions are correct because there's there's still people out there making suggestions. Some would say the Book of Mark is the first gospel written, uh, and I'll show you some things here. It's it's pretty clear from church history that uh, as they record, and I'll show you the references, that it was written by Mark, John Mark, and we're not going to talk about him tonight. We'll talk about John Mark next week. Um, But he ended up with Peter in Rome. And he was there in Rome when Peter would have been executed or would have been around with Peter. And Peter's execution would have taken place in 64 A.D. And that was... Nero ruled, if you want to say, did a pretty good job for five years or so of being a ruler. But then he started really attacking the, the aristocracy and overtaxing and trying to uh, you know, take out their possessions and change the tax laws and kind of went crazy. And he ended up, there, the Ro- Rome burnt, you know, Rome, there was a burning of Rome. We'll talk about that when we get into this. And uh, no one really understood what happened, but there was suspicion that Nero did it, and Nero tried to overcome it by you know, giving people money and rebuilding it gloriously. There's talk about Tacitus, even Roman historians talk about how you know, he was trying to rebuild the city, like Neropolis was going to change it, change the city. It was there, if there's 14 parts of Rome, there's only four or five portions of it left. I can give you the information in more detail. I'm just off the top of my head now. But it was, it was devastated. And so he realized he had lost public support. And so the Christians had been a kind of a, an underground religious group in Rome up until this time. And they'd been uh, ostracized, kind of, you know, people didn't like them because they wouldn't participate with society, like with the, the, uh, the guilds, the, what we'd call the, uh, uh, what do we call them? Uh, uh, unions you join the union uh, they're guilds and you if you join the union or the guild then you'd participate in festivals and each guild would have a god that you'd worship to bless your group and there'd be activities and sometimes it'd be immoral behavior and the christians wouldn't have anything to do with the guilds they were walking away from the immoral behavior and so people just were kind of thought well you're you're better than us or uh, which is one way of looking at it, but they were kind of like the haters. They kind of had the uh, that they were the haters of mankind. You never, you won't, won't ever show up for any of our social events, and you just don't like us. And so there's kind of like this undercurrent against the Christians. Well, uh, after Rome burnt, if Nero did it or not, uh, and it seems like he probably did, but that's that's another question. Uh, he definitely got blamed for it and felt the political pressure. So he says it wasn't me. And he, he blamed it on the Christians. Well, there's already this kind of this current, undercurrent uh, against the Christians because they didn't get along with anybody. They had their own agenda. And they, when Nero dumped it on them, it's like, okay, everybody followed. And then he began to persecute Christians. And, and, and Peter would have been killed, executed uh, in 64 AD. Uh, Mark would have been there, and he's going to write the book of Mark uh, from Rome 
uh, and he's going to be writing, uh, again, not necessarily, he's not necessarily thinking that we're going to be studying it in 2022 on the other side of the world. He's writing it for primarily his audience, which is the Ro- Roman Christians, the Roman church, which is now in Nero persecution. And he's trying to explain some things. And, and he's trying to capture Peter's teaching, all the accounts that Peter gave, and, and then put them in writing to circulate among the church. And th- I'll, I'll give you more information on that later. So that's kind of Mark's purpose. And we know Mark from uh, the book of Acts, and, and I'll go through this with you, and, and I don't need to, but I'm going to uh, next week in more detail. Uh, he's he's a Barnabas' cousin. Uh, he's probably... Uh, upper class Jews, but not Hebrew Jews, probably Hellenistic Jews, uh, probably having, maybe he probably grew up in Jerusalem, but his mother had a house in Jerusalem. The The church met there in the book of Acts. Some, and I do, but it's not guaranteed. The upper room may have been in her house uh, because it would have been in the quarter. It was in the quarter where the priests lived. It was the wealthy part of the city. Uh, is a house big enough for the church to meet in. Uh, and so uh, John Mark was probably a Hellenistic Jew, meaning he, he spoke Greek. Uh, so did Peter. I mean, everybody spoke Greek. But he was familiar with the culture, but yet he was from Jerusalem. He knew the Jewish culture. Uh, he ended up traveling with Barnabas and Paul on that first missionary journey. Uh, was considered one of the, the, the servant that came along, possibly a, a writer or a scribe, but maybe nothing more than just, you know, so it was, the word means under rower, meaning you're in the bottom of the boat rowing the boat while everybody's up on top. That's, that was his job. So he may have been in charge of arranging uh, travel and carrying the luggage. But anyway, when they left Cyprus to go up into Asia, the mainland, into some new Gentile territory, he abandoned them and went back to mom's house. And that made Paul mad. And the second time they came on the trip, Barnabas wanted to take him again, and Paul says no, and Barnabas and Paul had a big fight over John Mark. Uh, and he kind of disappears. He went with Barnabas for a while, and there was no record of him. But he appears again uh, with Peter. Uh, he's with Peter. Peter calls him his son, referring spiritual son, which makes you wonder how much of an, a spiritual influence he, he had. You, know, you don't just run around and call people sons. There must have been some kind of influence on him. And after Peter dies, uh, you see uh, Mark with uh, Paul in Colossae. And uh, also in 2 Timothy, he's saying, uh, bring Mark with you because he'll be useful for me in my ministry because Mark is going to prove to be a, uh, a great writer, a great scribe. Not just a scribe that just copies documents, although I'm sure he could do that and probably did. But in this book of Mark, uh, he's going to be the author of this. And he is going to take sources mainly it appears peter's sources because peter is because of peter the book of mark is an is an apostolic book because it's not mark's eyewitness account it's peter's eyewitness account that mark is recording that's the general consensus of this now you can slip mark into the gospels and and it does happen in this book because when jesus arrests in the garden of gethsemane you know uh, you know, Peter cuts off the high priest servant's ear, and uh, Judas kisses Jesus. And then there's some rustling in the in the in the olive trees over there. And the Roman guards reach out and grab some, or the whatever the priest guards or something grabs at this young man, and he runs away. But he leaves his coat behind because all he had was like a bed sheet or something, like a, a bedrobe or something, and runs away naked. It says now I don't know if that actually literally means he ran away <laughs> naked or ran away in his underwear or whatever. But it was the middle of the night, and it appears that he had followed a crowd out to the Gethsemane, which if, we're speculating, if, and sometimes this is, abs- you can think this is absolutely true, but it doesn't say it in the Bible. Sometimes you can make some speculation, but it's one of those things, you've got a very condensed book of Mark, but yet this story is in there. So it gives us that first hand, whoever saw this knew this first hand, because this is not something that you're going to record for, you know, everyone you want to know to remember this. It's like, he just the writer of this book knows this detail uh and it wouldn't probably wouldn't be something peter would have taught as he toured around and shared the gospel and brought pe- people to faith in christ is oh there's a young man there that ran off naked because the roman guard grabbed the bed sheet it's like 
What's that got to do with anything? Oh, just something weird I remember. You know, it's like maybe you say it once or twice, but it'd hardly be worth writing in a book, which means Mark may have been that individual, that young man, because he would have been at, if the upper room's at his mom's house, which the church definitely met there in the book of Acts, just like a few weeks after the church started, uh, he may have, you know, the Last Supper's taken place, and then they leave, and then the guards come to arrest Jesus because Judas would have brought them to that house. And he goes, well, they're not here. They must have gone to the next location. They would have gone out. And then he leads the guards and everyone out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, John Mark's hearing all this. He would have followed it out to see what's going on. So he may have been a, an eyewitness. Mark himself may have been an eyewitness of the arrest of Jesus or at least was there and ran off. Uh, and that, So, I mean, there's several places we see John Mark in there. So we can see John Mark possibly or definitely, at least in the book of Acts, as a young man. And by the time we get to uh, the life of Peter, he's, you know, we're, we're, you know, 30 years into the future. He's, you know, 40, 50 years old himself uh, and is a scribe and, and then would have continued. I think church history records that he died a martyr in Egypt. Uh, but, you know, that's beyond, and that's, I, I'm not even sure about that. But anyway, we are in Mark. Uh, I'm going to begin in the book of Mark reading just the introduction here. And then I want to start, I got a little box drawn up there just to show you how the book of Mark is broken down. It's going to take us three or four weeks to get into the book of Mark. But uh, it begins chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, the very first line is maybe. Now, first of all, there is no personal reference here. Mark, Mark's name is not mentioned in here. Not at the end, not at the beginning. It doesn't say this is, this is Mark's account. Like Luke actually talks about, you know, who he's writing to, and, and Luke, you know, is pretty clear. Uh, Paul's letters have his name in it. Uh, but this, here's, here's really maybe the only thing, the only opinion in the book that is Mark's opinion. Uh, it, it is chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so, meaning this, he's writing right here, the beginning of the good news of Jesus, who is the Messiah, who is the Son of God. In other words, this is just the beginning. Because once you hear what I'm about to tell you about the man, Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised Messiah, who is the Son of God himself, this is just the beginning of the good news of the things that are going to happen to you or of what's taking place through history because of this. And that's kind of, so he, that's, that's in a sense is the title of the book, or it's the, the purpose of the book. That, that's what he's, that's his identification right there. And then in verse 2 and 3, he combines quotes from Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3, combines the prophecies together, and writes, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send you the messenger, uh, my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And then right from there, from Isaiah 40, you know, combined with uh, you know, Malachi 3, verse 4 fulfills that prophecy. And so, because that was the prophecy, and so uh, John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Tony, you want to come get my phone, please? I just took a picture with my phone. Yes, my children are sending me pictures from something around the world. Anyway, there's John. Uh, uh, confessing their sins, they came. Uh, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothes made of camel's hair. talks about him. And then, verse 9, introduces Jesus. And, that, and at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And again, this is so, we, we're familiar with these verses, but this is an astronomical moment, if that's a good word to say, is you've got the man Jesus and he's being baptized and heaven is opened, meaning something has taken place. And God sends his spirit on his son. And then there's a voice came from heaven saying, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. I mean, that, that is God identifying from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. But at the very beginning of Mark, we have an identification. 
this is the Son of God, and God is pleased with Jesus. Uh, and that's going to be an important thing because throughout, and I'll show you, there's three, four places where Jesus clearly identified in this book. And the first one here is by, by God himself. Now, uh, what happens then after that, verse 12 is always interesting because you think, it depends on how you look at this, Jesus came to confront his enemy, which is Satan and the angelic forces that are against the kingdom of God. He came to save mankind. For God so loved the world, he sent his son. So Jesus, once he's, the Spirit comes on him, once God identifies him, the Spirit says, let's go to war. So we, we have this impression, again, you can go either way as you look at this, Satan's coming to tempt Jesus, or Jesus going out to confront Satan. Because I mean, Jesus came, it acts, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So once he begins his ministry, where is, where is he going to be taken? Where is the Spirit? He's going to take him to Satan. We're going to have a confrontation. But at the same time, Satan's looking for the same confrontation. In fact, from Genesis 3, Satan's been looking for the seed of the woman, trying to find him, and God just said, he, God basically says, this is him. And so Satan now has been targeting Abel. He was targeting Noah. He was targeting Isaac and Abraham, and all the way through David, all the way through, he's been targeting, and now God identifies Jesus. And so then you have uh, the next verse, at once, verse 12, at once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan, he was with wild animals, and angels attended him. Now, one thing I'm going to say, and I'll say it several times, but it just pops up right there. One of the things, remember, this is written in Rome according to church tradition, and it makes sense uh, because that's where Peter died. That's where Mark was when he was with Peter. Uh, and it's 64 AD. They are in the middle of persecution. Uh, and I'll, I'll go through some more details of that persecution. I mean, you're familiar with it. Nero was lighting Christians on fire. He was sending them into the Colosseum to be eaten by animals. They were basically just being used to be destroyed, and the crowd would come and watch him. So throughout this, Mark is writing to the believers in Rome, in the church in Rome. And at this time, it's not like someday you're going to face persecution. It's like you are in the midst of persecution. And the first thing he says right here is Jesus was went out to face Satan and there were wild animals. Now this is just one of many things that you're going to see that it's like, why is that mentioned? Well, the believers in Rome in 64 AD were facing wild animals. The Spirit was on Jesus and he had, they had to face wild animals and angels took care of them, attended them. Not that, they, not that they were protected, but that they were ministered to. And so there's several things, and we'll eventually make a list of it, that it's like is unique to Mark, but he's writing, again, he's not writing to us, he's writing to his audience, which is 64 AD Rome, and these believers are under persecution. And what Jesus, who's following God, has to face they're going to have to face. And throughout this book, and if you go through any rough outline of the Gospels, uh, and, and you know this, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they all portray Christ. John portrays Christ as God. Uh, Luke portrays Christ as a man. Matthew portrays Christ as the king. And Mark portrays Christ as the servant or the suffering servant. And so this is perfect for the Rome audience that he's writing to because all the believers are at this time in this stage. Uh, Luke is going to be writing to the Gentiles and presenting Jesus Christ as the man, and he's writing to Gentiles, and he chases his genealogy all the way back to Adam because Jesus is the man promised Adam for not just the Jews, the Gentiles. Over here, Matthew's writing to the Jews, and he's trying to convince the Jews that Jesus is the king, and he traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to David, the king, all the way back to Abraham, to the Jewish line. And so they've each got a target audience. John is writing now 
let's say, you know, 85, 90 A.D. So John is writing. He's not going to record all of this historical information like this. He's going to write a different account, and he's going to present Jesus Christ, and he's going to give seven, seven signs. Now, Jesus did, at the end of the book of John, John says, if everything Jesus did were written down, he says, I suppose the world couldn't hold the books. But I have I have chosen, and, and you know, he doesn't say it specifically like that, but you can see it. There are seven signs, seven miracles in there, which John thinks, if you'll listen to these, that those are enough signs, enough things that Jesus did. Now, Jesus would do a sign, and then it would be explained, and then his, some things would take place. Jesus would do a miracle, something outstanding that had a big result, and then it would be explained. And by reading this, John is, he says at the very beginning, that, that you may know that Jesus is the Son of God. And so he's writing seven signs to, and he's writing in Ephesus in Asia Minor at that time. So there's probably Jews reading it, but he's also writing to, he's writing it in, in the style of Greek philosophy, with, especially using the word the Logos. Uh, the Logos became flesh. And so these seven signs are to convince you that he, uh, Jesus is the Son of God. So each of these is, again, it's historical it's theologically solid. It's, it's God revealing himself to mankind through his written word. But each group has an audience. They're, they're not writing to you and me, knowing that people are going to be reading this for thousands of years. Uh, they're writing to the Jews that Matthew felt called to. They're writing to the Gentiles that he wanted. He, he's writing to Theophilus, he's the, the knight, the, the honorable Theophilus in Rome, so that he may know without a shadow of a doubt that these things are true. And he gets eyewitness accounts, Luke does. John's writing for his purpose that you may know that Jesus is the Son of God. And Mark is writing, and you're going to see, he's writing to Rome, and throughout the book, well, let's take a look here at the notes right here at the top of the page. They've got three boxes there. And again, uh, it, it's the book of Mark, it, it's, it, it's, it's a simpler book than Matthew because... Uh, Matthew's got more, more details, more stories in it. Uh, same thing Luke, uh, but it's very similar. We'll talk about the similarity. And so I don't want to say it's a simple book, but it's maybe uh, a more uh, targeted. He's, it's maybe a cleaned up book, if you want to say it like that. Uh, I'm, all those things I'm saying, I, I, I would argue with myself as I'm trying to define this. But as you can see, if you take... And I've done in framework, and many of you have heard me go through framework and, and, the, and the chronology, chronological order of the life of Christ. And that's fun. That's my style of teaching is here's the historical events. We take this is from John and this is from Luke, and we just kind of put all these things sliced together and just have this, this sequence of historical events. That's the way I think. Mark, uh, you can see right away, he's got Jesus coming from Galilee. We just read that, being baptized, going off in the wilderness. But then basically, starting in chapter 1, going to verse 8, he is in, Jesus is in Galilee. Yeah, but we know that Jesus went to the Passover every year. And he had a three-year ministry. There's four Passovers, if you count all the Passovers, especially in John. He's coming and going to the Passovers. Why do we skip that? It's like, what, he's just in Galilee? And it's like, did I spell that right? And then... There's that, that's chapter 1 through chapter 8. He's in Galilee, and I'll, we'll talk about that. Then they're going to go to, now I can't spell this, C-A-E-S-A-R-E-A, it's easier for me just to say it, Philippi, Caesarea Philippi, up in the base of Mount Hermon. I'll scribble that out so no one sees it. Uh, at the base of Mount Hermon, just north of the Sea of Galilee. And that's where he's, that's going to be chapter 8, the second half of chapter 8, up through verse 10. And that's where Jesus is going to say, you know, uh, who do men say that I am? This is him introducing himself. He, uh, he's, uh, I'll just say, introduction to who he is. Uh, he's going to do uh, signs, miracles, teaching. And people are going to be like, who is this? And uh, some of the disciples are going to believe. But now understand, when they believe, and this is, this is, this is a point throughout the Gospels, it's almost been a theme of ours, in, if it's Sunday morning, Monday night, or Tuesday night, is like, you know this information, but God is doing this right here. And so if you try to put everything in your understanding, there's many things you get confused about. Just like Abraham, uh, he obeyed and went, 
he knew God, he understood the call, but he did not know where he was going. But yet he went, but he didn't know where. And so many times, we, we, and we've talked about it, uh, uh, like on, on uh, uh, Tuesday nights, they're going back to build the temple. They're going to go back, but it's like, oh, this is going to be great. We're going to build the temple. And all of a sudden, there's all kinds of opposition. Well, I thought we were going to build the temple. I know we're going to have to. There's all kinds of legal battles. And it's like they, they knew the purpose, but they didn't understand the, the, how big a deal it was. Same thing with us. I know Jesus is Lord. I understand the Word of God is the inspired revelation of God. And I've got some understanding of it. And I know what God is doing well, in a limited sense, but what's the plan of salvation? It's like so much bigger. Uh, and same thing throughout the book of Hebrews, especially chapter 11. Well, here, there's people believing in him, but when the disciples start following Jesus, they are, they are understanding it, most likely. Again, I can't speak for every one of their, all of their thoughts, but the impression is, especially in Mark, that they're like, they're always off balance. It's like, that, that's not what we were expecting. Because they're expecting, they're looking for, they're waiting, as you know. They know the Old Testament prophecies. Uh, the Messiah is going to come and deliver them. The seed of the woman is going to come and crush the power of Satan. Yes. And then here he is. He says, I am him. It's like, well, then we're looking for a warrior. We're looking for the overthrow of the nations. We're looking for the blessing of Jerusalem, the restoration of Israel, and uh, the crushing of Satan. It's like, that's exactly what we're going to do. First, we're going to crush Satan's power of sin. All right, let's do it. Well, and then at this, it is at this point right here, he says, well, I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem and be crucified. Okay, I, yeah, because right here, they think they understand, but they do, they do not understand. I can tell you this. They, they, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Do you understand the cross? I have no idea what you're talking about. That's, in fact, Peter's going to rebuke him. It's like, that is not what you're here for. Let me just, let me, let's clear this up right now. It's like, yes, that's exactly where I'm going. It's kind of like, well, now we're confused. And the disciples, you're going to see the disciples confused here. Disciples confused here. And the book ends with the disciples confused, right? It's like, because the women are says, go tell my disciples. Now, again, we'll talk about this. The end of the book of Mark, it appears, the original end of the book of Mark according and exp and you can see it throughout the book of mark it's a literary style he's writing and you're going to have to make a decision you're going to make a decision here you're going to make a decision here and the angel appeared to the women and says he's not here he is risen go tell his disciples and the women it says went away afraid and confused it's like what it's like and i can show you and you don't have to agree with this but it's in your fall your footnotes of your bible uh, it's like, that's the end of the book of Mark. And then, of course, someone's got to come by and go, okay, well, we got to clean this up. And they put an ending to it. But that may be exactly the way Mark intended it to be. And I, we'll talk about that more when we get there. But uh, they've got, that you've got to decide. Now, here they're being introduced. They're doing signs. He's teaching. Many people believe. Many people are confused. And many people begin to oppose him. Oppose him for different reasons. Here he takes his disciples away. They go away by themselves, away from the crowd. He's got his 12, and he says, okay, now, what do you guys think? Well, Peter says, you're, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. Okay. Then he, says, now, then he began, is right here in these chapters, he began from here on. You can see right in these chapters, there's four times. He says, okay, the Son of Man, and yeah, that, that's you. He says, the Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem and be crucified. And on the third day, I'll rise from the dead. So he began, and again, they go, yes, that's exactly. And, and Peter pulls out his eschatology chart because he'd been to Galen's Bible study. And it's like right there, that's where we got the crucifixion right here. Right after about two and three, and three years of ministry, Jesus will be crucified. Just according to the, it's like we've been to Galen's Bible study, eschatology. We didn't know exactly, yes, we were expecting the crucifixion. No one was expecting the crucifixion. There's no eschatology cross with the Messiah getting nailed on a cross by the Romans. I mean, it's like, that, and again, so when I talk about my eschatology charts, and you've seen them, it's like, I guarantee there's some things, it's like, uh, yeah, I didn't have that on my, you know, how they did that game they played for $500, who had this on the chart? It's like, uh, no, no one had this on the chart. Now, even Isaiah wrote about it, but I don't think Isaiah had it on his chart. You know, it's one thing to prophesy for the Lord and speak the word of the Lord. It's another thing to completely understand it. And so, especially in the New Testament, says this was a mystery. So he begins to teach that to him. 
And then, beginning in chapter 11 through 16, it's all in Jerusalem. They Right here in chapter 8, 9, and 10, they go to Caesarea Philippi. He does this teaching, and then they journey to Jerusalem, continuing to talk about this event, and none of them understand it. In fact, there's going to be an art. And he's teaching there. This is where he says, you've got to be a servant. He says, you're going to have to take your cross and follow me. You're going to have to become a servant. The greatest of you is going to be the least. It's all, and, and it's like, after he gets on teaching that, then that's when they're like arguing on who's the greatest among them. It's like, so do they, they hear his teaching, they take notes on his teaching, but then they start arguing on who's going to be the greatest. I'm going to be the greatest servant. No, 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 I'm going to be the greatest servant. It's like, and so they're still trying to learn, which is, again, good for us to see because, you know, many times I don't understand what's going on or I find myself getting frustrated because I read the scriptures and I don't do the scriptures. Uh, they're struggling with the whole thing. Uh, and here, Peter's, Peter's going to make the great confession here that Jesus is the Son of God. But over here, in fact, you can make three points. There's one, two, three main points that are brought out over here. And Peter's going to deny one, two, three, all three of them right there. I mean, it's like he's going to deny all of them. And whose book is this? Mark, who according to the all, I mean, it's throughout church history, it's Peter's stories. It's Peter's account. And Peter's the one who makes these points. And then I said no, I said no, I said no. And it's like, oh. But that's going to be good for all these people because these people in Rome, they're going to be facing persecution. Now, this, kind of, this is going to give you some, a, a little bit of leeway uh, of renouncing Christ. If you're under persecution and you renounce Christ, uh, now Jesus is going to include parables right here. And right here in chapters 1 through 8, what is it, chapter 4? Uh, uh, that the seed falls on good soil and it falls in the, the, the weeds, it falls in the rocks and the ditch and it falls on the pavement, it gets eaten by the birds. And there's a reason that why they, they rejoice, but because of persecution they fall away. Because of trouble or hardship they fall away. Uh, so he, does, he is giving that warning of falling away in the face of persecution, that if you fall away in the face of persecution, you never really had any root. But yet you've got here at the end of the story, you've got Peter denying Christ, but yet being restored by christ and so in rome as they're facing persecution there's a warning if you don't have a good ground if you don't have if you have a good root you, and a little bit of persecution comes and you fall away you never really were saved you were never really you never really had christ in your life but yet at the same time if you do have christ in your life like peter confessed christ and then when the pressure came he he lost his head and denied him three times well, he, there's, still that, there's still that potential of, you know, so which way are you going to go? You, didn't, you renounced Christ, you never had Christ? Well, Peter renounced Christ, and he had and still had Christ. So it's like, what's the answer there? Well, I, I think it's got to depend on the individual heart. But right over here, this is all in Jerusalem. That's going to be the beginning of chapter 8, the triumphal entry. And then you're going to have all the debates on the Temple Mound. Uh, you're going to have Jesus cursing the fig tree. You're going to have chapter, uh, uh, what is it, 13, 14. Uh, what is, which one is it? I should know this. I mean, uh, no, 13, the future. Chapter 13. Yeah, chapter 14, they have the plot to kill Jesus, and then they, they follow through with it. But chapter 13 is where he predicts the future of that generation and then the future of his return and setting up his kingdom. This is the eschatological chapter of Mark, Mark chapter 13. So that is right here. He's in Galilee introducing himself to the people with signs, teaching, they all respond. Everybody's got an opinion. He takes the disciples away and says, okay, let's, let's ice this. Do you know who I am? Yes, you're the Son of God. Okay, now understand, I'm going to be crucified. And it's like, that's the plan. And, of course, they don't understand it, but, you know, they will after it takes place. Then they go to Jerusalem, and it happens just like they said. And then he's crucified and resurrected, and the angel says to the ladies that come to the tomb, he's not here, he's risen. Go tell his disciples to meet him in Galilee. Now again, we know that he appears to him there in Jerusalem, but the word at the end of Mark, which would be accurate, it's just missing a few details, is, uh, is the word was, go meet me in Galilee. And Jesus does meet them in Galilee. That's where G Peter's fishing and all those stories there. Uh, but that's kind of the story of what's going on right there in the book of, of Mark, and we'll go through that here in the next several 
weeks, I'll say, to be civil to the crowd. Okay. I think what you've got right there on, the, on page one, the organization of the book. Uh, I think I've said all that. The Gospel of Mark is organized to pr- uh, 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 pr- an organized proclamation that begins the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, combines the quotes and so again that that what 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 takes place in the book of mark is exactly this a proclamation it is the beginning of the gospel beginning of the good news uh point two mark organized the book to serve his purpose now when it says mark organized the book to serve his purpose it doesn't mean he made things up it means he takes all the information that he's got available and selectively puts it in an order Again, not, not mixing up the sequence of events, not making stories up, but he highlights there's things he doesn't talk about. Just like John says, if I wrote down everything Jesus did, the world couldn't contain the book. So I'm going to tell you seven miracles, seven signs. So Jesus only did seven signs? No, read my book. I says, I can't tell you everything he did. So I'm selecting seven things to make my point. If you understand these seven things, you have enough information to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, there's a billion things I could tell you, but if you know these seven things, you've got enough information. Mark is doing the same thing. He, he's, probably, he's, talk, he's traveled with Barnabas, who was around Christ. He traveled with Paul, who was spoken to by Christ. He's been in the apparently the upper room, or at least the early church. Now, if the early church, and we're talking... we're talking the first week of church if they met in john mark's house in fact when peter what james got his head cut off by herod agrippa the first and then peter got arrested was put in prison and remember the angel came and let him out and they're all praying in john mark's house in john mark's mother's house the church is praying for peter because james got his head cut off so mark knew james john's brother who got his got decapitated by herod agrippa then all of a sudden there's a knock on the door and someone answers the door. The servant opens the door. Remember that? Rhoda, the servant, opens the door uh, and, and shuts it and says, it's Peter. It's Peter's ghost. He's dead already. You can stop praying. And Peter's like, no, I'm not dead. It's like, and so we can assume John Mark was there, so he knows John's probably praying because his brother just got his head cut off. Here comes Peter over to the house. Well, who else is in the room praying? Well, all the disciples, which would probably include Philip and all those that were the early you know, t- t- the ones that took care of the widows and uh, the Philip and Stephen, these the ones that were chosen by the disciples, they're all me. So John Mark knows, uh, you know, the elite. I mean, he knows the elite, and so he's got to have story. He could have written an encyclopedia of everything he remembers about. I mean, wouldn't you, if you're sitting around talking to him, well, tell us about Philip. Tell us about Nathaniel. What was John really like? Did, did John really have an attitude? Did Peter and John get along? Tell us some stories. I mean, he could do talk show after talk show and tell us stories about the disciples, but he picks out the things he wants. You understand what I'm saying? So, I mean, it's organized because he's got a message. Uh, number three, the first half of the book introduces Jesus and the response of the people. The midway point is at Caesarea Philippi where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, point four, the second half of the book follows Peter's confession. Uh, point five, so the arrangement of the book, I've got it written right there, what I just showed you. And then here, point six, each of the three parts, the time in Galilee, the time at Caesarea Philippi, the time in Jerusalem, has a confession that Jesus is the Son of God. The first part, God himself says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Chapter 8, Peter says, you are the Christ. They go to the Mount of Transfiguration, and then it says, that's where God says, speaks for the second time, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And then, interestingly, the very last confession at, at Christ's death, this Roman centurion who's guarding the cross and is facing Jesus, when Jesus dies, he says, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, you can say a variety of things about the centu- Roman centurion saying, surely, this was the Son of God. Does the, does the Roman centurion truly understand what it means to be the Son of God? Well, okay, before we answer that question, does Peter truly understand when he says, yes, you are the Christ, the Son of God? It's like, yeah, and I'm going to be crucified. No, 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 you're not. So even Peter, upon his confession, is still missing some information. So I, I will not want to discount 
at the end of the book of Mark, because and I've heard it, I've probably done this passing by, you know, we're not sure what he's thinking, he's a Roman, sons of God, they've got all kinds of sons of God, they've got Greek mythology that the Romans turned into Roman mythology, which is the same thing, just different names. And so what does the Roman centurion really know? Well, besides that questioning attitude, realize Mark has a wide range of people he could quote, but he ends the crucifixion scene with a Roman soldier, a centurion, who's in charge of a hundred other soldiers, looking at Christ saying, watching him die, saying, surely this was the Son of God. Something, this, he, he'd seen people die on the cross before, but nobody dies like this. This guy died like the Son of God. Now what does he mean? Well, first of all, he means not like a normal man. This was not normal. And so Mark is using that and he got the information from Peter, most likely, is using that as one of the confessions. If you've got God confessing in the first part, Peter confessing in the middle part, now you've got a Roman soldier confessing at the death of Christ. I think in John Mark's mind, that's just not a footnote. That's a stop and think about this. The Roman centurion himself says, this is the Son of God. Now, why is that important? We go back to this, and this, you're going to see this throughout this book. If this is being written in Rome to Christians who are believers who are under persecution and a lot of that persecution is being executed or followed through with Roman soldiers or Roman oversight, you now have a Roman centurion who at the cross himself says, we know who this is. With Christ's death, the Roman centurion became a believer. That's when Christ died. Now, in Rome, you may find yourself being persecuted. Well, what happened when Jesus died? the Roman centurion realized there's something going on here. So you can face your persecution, and if it leads you to death, because Jesus says you will be persecuted and Jesus in this book, and he says you will suffer, and he says you'll need to take up your cross and follow me. And Jesus died on the cross, and some of the, some of the, uh, the, the Christians in Rome will die on crosses. I mean, why not? I mean, they're, they're following a guy that died on a cross. We'll nail you on a cross. Peter died on a cross, apparently upside down. That's the, the legend, the tradition. You know, I don't have any, you know, Bible verses. Um, but the idea there is, you know, the centurion saw something. Now you can do the same thing. And again, the idea there that the centurion was brought to faith, they are not facing a hopeless battle because there's already Romans uh, that have come to faith. Okay, uh, the next part here, the history of the study of Mark's gospel. And this, this is where I, I've, got, I've got some information, I've got some opinions. And I, I'm going to tell you, here's, oh, how do we begin this? Because we, it's important, at least it's important to me, of what came first, Mark or Matthew. Uh, you've got Matthew, you've got Mark, you've got Luke, you've got John. Okay? Now, John, I think, is pretty easy. Now, some people will disagree. Some people will disagree. Uh, you're going to go two, yeah, two directions with this. Uh, uh, 85, 90 A.D., being written in Ephesus, Asia Minor. That's the book of John. The second-generation Christians. In the 1800s, uh, they began to teach that this, the book of John, as we've said many times, was not written by John. It was too advanced. Theology is too advanced. The Greek is too advanced. Uh, that it had to be written by one of John's disciples late in the second century, right around probably 200 A.D., maybe 190 A.D. That's the 1800s. That was in the seminaries in the 1900s until the John Ryland manuscript was found. We've talked about that little piece of papyrus that had parts of John on both sides about this big piece of papyrus, and it was dated to 115, maybe 110 uh, A.D., and it was found in Egypt, which means... It was already in a different continent, and if John, meaning it, it wasn't written in 110 because it was already copied in Egypt in 110. So you've at least got to give it 20 years, 90 or 25 years, 85 AD, to get written, get transferred and copied to have a, manu- or a, a fragment of it down in Egypt. So that destroyed that. So this is a pretty solid, for me at least, this is pretty solid. That's when the book of John was written. Luke is pretty easy to date. Because he says that he got eyewitness accounts. And he's writing to Theophilus, uh, someone in Rome. 
and he's writing so that you may have uh, an orderly account. I carefully investigated, he says, talked to eyewitnesses. Now, Luke himself is not an apostle. He, he in the sense of being, you know, one of the 12 or being Paul, uh, but he, I mean, he wrote a book, so we can call him apostle for that reason, but he is going to go, he's traveling with Paul. He's an eyewitness of Paul's accounts. He's also going to interview people. Uh, I'd assume he interviewed Mary. We've talked about this before because he's got some details about Mary's interaction with the angel and things that she said, things that she sang, that where do you get this stuff from? Well, Mary, she's still alive. I asked her. She told me. And that is exact. And it's like, well, could that really? I thought it came by inspiration. Well, Luke doesn't say these are the things that God told me to write. He says these are the things I carefully investigated after talking to the eyewitness accounts. So he tells you right up front, I didn't go to the mountain and God gave me this book. He says, I, I researched it. I interviewed people and put it together in an orderly account, which means he had this note and this note and this story. It's like an orderly account. How do I put this together in an orderly account? He had, to, now again, the Spirit of God's working with this, but it's Luke, the man, putting it into an orderly account. And we know that he was with Paul while Paul was in the Caesarean uh, prison between 57 and 60 AD. Paul was there for three years. So that would be a great time for Luke, who's from Asia Minor up in Troas. That's where he's from. But now he's interviewing people in, in, in Israel. Well, this was when he was in Israel, when he went there with Paul. So it's pretty clear that's when he was interviewing all of these people. And then he's on the prison ship with Paul going to Rome. And he's going to be in prison with Paul or with Paul in Rome while Paul's under house arrest uh, between 60 and 62. So... Luke is writing, researching, and finalizing his book during this time right here because he's also going to have to write the book of Acts because the book of Acts ends right here with Paul still in prison. Paul, as far as we know, according to the book of Acts, Paul is in prison and the Jews are visiting him every day. And so that's, that's, he, had, he had Acts written and Acts is part two. He even says, in my first book, Theophilus, I began to write the things that Jesus began to do. Now he's going to write the things that he's going to continue to do with the church. So it is possible he researched and wrote the book of Luke between 57 and 60 A.D. He may have finished it in, in Rome, but he's going to have to write and finish Acts in Rome also before Paul's out of prison. So you're right, that's where you're writing Luke. So these things are pretty solid. These two things cause us problems except for the fact that Mark is going to be written according to the accounts of the early church, at, at, and I'll show you, at Peter's death. So Peter dies in 64. He would have known some things. He would have been researching and hearing things. He's a scribe. I mean, he's, he's, he's going to write for Peter. He's going to be with Peter when he writes a, a book. Paul's going, to call him, or Peter's going to call him. Paul's going to want him to come write for him. So he's a scribe. He's a writer. So I would assume he's writing some things down ahead of time. Now, this is me assuming. We're going to read the church historical accounts, but the church historical accounts are not always, in a sense, eyewitnesses. They're the ones that are recording what everybody's saying, what everybody knows, what the tradition is. Uh, Sometimes they're eyewitnesses, like, like Eusebius, the church historian, wrote in you know, 325, 350. He even begins to write, and he wrote like eight books. In, in one of his last books, maybe ten books, uh, but in his last book, he began, now I'm going to write about things of my own day. Because he was writing all the way back to the days of the apostles, writing about Herod Agrippa, and then all the way through John, and all the way through the first, uh, the second, third century, all the persecutions. And he's writing, because he didn't live through all of it, he's writing what he remembers hearing or what he knows, he's researching. But then he begins to write about what he knows about Constantine and the things he's seen take place and the rulers and leaders that he himself met. That's Eusebius, the church historian. Mark is going to be writing what Peter saw, and so he'll be writing down things that, you know, keeping track of things that Peter's saying beforehand. But the church historians say, one of them says, he began writing after Peter died. Now, that doesn't, I mean, so if you're going to follow that like scripture, that means, no, 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 Mark did not write anything until Peter's dead. Then he says, ah, I better write some of that stuff down. Okay, you can go with that, but I think the common sense would be he's going to finish. He's going to publish. He's going to edit, put it together, all the things, let's get this out, and people need this information because up until this time peter's saying it but 
But I still got to think he's writing some things down. But nonetheless, Mark is written, if you're going to follow church history, right here. 64 A.D. is the release date. Now, I spent all summer working on the revised edition of Jerusalem. But on the, and when you open the cover up, after we get it, it's going to say September 2022. It's like, you wrote this in September 2022? No, no, I was teaching shop in the middle school in September 2022. I wrote it in June, July, and a little bit of August. So if, you know what I'm saying, so we'll give this a release date of 64 AD, and I don't know for sure. But it's not, but see how close these are. Matthew, if you're going to go with, right now, the popular opinion when Matthew was written, it's going to be written sometime between 60 maybe 80 A.D. You know, there's a more of a 10-year period, maybe 60 to 70 or 70 to 80. You could say, you know, you know right in there, 70 A.D. That's what they're saying. Uh, probably more like 70 A.D. That, that would be the popular consensus right now of scholars. And again, I'm not a scholar, so I can't sit here and take cheap shots at the scholars because scholars are scholars because they're scholars. And I'm a Bible teacher because I read the scholars. So... It doesn't make any sense to read the scholars and then sit and make fun of them. Uh, but that doesn't, I don't like that. This I agree with. This makes total sense. This makes total sense. This makes sense. Matthew, the, that would be fine. The reason they put Matthew here many times is because Matthew is using Mark. And Luke is using Mark. And we'll maybe make some kind of explanation or diagram. But we've got you know, like 90% of Mark, or something like this, I give you the better detail, is in Matthew. And the similar is in Luke. And some of the, the details are, I mean, it's like, you know, you've read it. it. It's here, it's here, it's here. And so they're using Mark, or Mark is using something else, this other, we'll just say source, S-O-U-R-C-E, this other source of information that Mark is drawing from to add with now, the Bible doesn't say, he doesn't say, I am writing an orderly account of everything Peter taught. That's not what Mark says. That's what the church historians say, that he's writing what things that Peter taught. So you're not coming in Scripture to say, well, he's also using other sources. Understand Luke. Luke begins, let's just read that if you don't mind. And I, and I know you've read it before. But again, this is when Luke, again, if you under, accept what I'm saying, uh, this is when Luke was researched and written. Uh, we say a release date of 60 A.D., 61 A.D., uh, something like that. But this is what Luke says. So remember, that's what, when he writes this, when he writes this, it's in 60 A.D. Chapter 1, verse 1, the very first thing Luke says. Luke 1, 1, many have undertaken to draw up an account of things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. What he's saying is in 60 AD, many have already written these things down. They wrote them down just like they were handed down to us from the eyewitnesses that saw them. So there's two things happening here. In 60 A.D., Luke is saying there are many Gospels already, if you want to use the word gospel loosely, meaning there's already many written accounts. And those written accounts came from the eyewitnesses that saw them back here in 30 A.D. They saw them, they talked about them, talked about them, talked about them, and people started writing down. When did they start writing them down? Well, if you're a scribe, if you're a blogger, if you're putting something on Facebook, they're talking about in 30 A.D., you're posting it on Facebook in 30 A.D. I mean, somebody's writing these things down in 30 A.D., I would think. Now, there may not be, we not, may not have a copy of it, but by 35 A.D., somebody's writing it down, especially after Paul's terrorizing the church and the church is starting to spread. They're, they're, it's, it's spreading in, in North Africa. It's spreading in Antioch up in Syria. And it's like there's people going around teaching, but they've also got to say, hey, you know, I won't be able to come, but here, let me write down. Here's what I would say if I got there. I mean, they, they, they've got to be writing these things down by 35 AD because the church is spreading into three different continents already. So it's like, well, we, we, we better just wait for the apostles to get here. 
Well, they were going, but someone's writing. It, it, they're they're a literate, literate culture. I mean, they're the ones that have the Old Testament. They've got the Dead Sea Scrolls. I mean, there's pages of stuff. So when, John, when Luke writes in 60, 61 A.D., many have already written these things down, and what they wrote down was the accounts that were handed down to them by the eyewitnesses. He's saying many. Now, many cannot include John, because John was not written yet. So you, when he says many, he could be referring to Matthew and Mark. Well, Mark, we know, is not going to be written until 64 A.D., because that's when Peter dies. So if we're following this chart, he's not talking about Mark. So Luke, if you have a release date of 60 A.D., and Acts is written after here, and Acts have to have been written after the the book of Luke because it closes in 62 A.D. And it's got to be written before 70 A.D. I've given through that apologetically because there's nothing in there about the fall of Jerusalem, nothing about the Roman Wars. The Sanhedrin is still meeting. Uh, There's still Jews coming and going freely in 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 Rome. The church is still meeting in Rome. In fact, Paul is released in Rome. He's still under house arrest. He's not nailed to a wall. He's got a rented apartment. People are coming and bringing him gifts, talking to him, visiting him from Philippi, coming back and forth, traveling. It's like there's no Nero burning anything. There's no war. So Luke is written at that time, and Mark was probably written in 64, if you follow the traditions of... And then when's Matthew? Matthew, if you're going to go with a 70, 80 AD, if you're going to go with this, what, again, this may be correct, but if you do, Luke is saying many have already written down what the eyewitnesses told us about the Word. He's talking about not Matthew, not Mark, and not John. He's talking about these other sources. Who, where are they? Uh, well, right, right, they're lost. We don't know. But it is possible that Luke would have used this source, that Mark would have used this source, and Matthew would have used this source, because this is similar to this, which is similar to this, which is similar to this. You've got the same almost word for word. It's not like the same story told by somebody else. It's like you copied this from Mark. And that's, that's our whole debate right now, is we're talking about Mark, and Luke copied parts of Mark, and Matthew copied parts of Mark, or large parts of Mark, except for the fact that I think I'm going to say right here, Luke was written before Mark was, I think. Now, I'm not a scholar, because, but you got the dates right there. When was Matthew written? Uh, I have said 48 to 50 A.D. Matthew was written. Again, now don't, this is what I'm saying. Uh because I think that would be something that would be written early in Hebrew and then translated, or Aramaic, and then translated into the Greek. That is not, now listen, if you look in your, your notes here in your Bibles, your, you have your study Bibles, it's not going to say that probably. But you have another problem too. When you get into First and Second Thessalonians, not a problem, but insight. Because Paul is going to tell them, as you know, we went through this, according to the Lord's own word. And then he describes the end time events and he's quoting, referring to what is written in Matthew uh, what, what is Matthew 20, what is the, what the end time? This is starting to happen to me more and more. I'm forgetting like numbers. You know, es- eschatology. 20, is it 24, Matthew 24? You know what I'm talking about. You guys have young minds think. I'm embarrassed. 24 because 25 is the eschatological parables matthew 24 now it's uh yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna quit there because i'm i'm losing numbers in my head here uh that's a couple times in a week now that's happened uh nonetheless uh according to the lord's own word and then he describes what's going to take place well what is the lord's own word and for a long time i would say well that must have been something uh the lord told paul it could be, according to the Lord's own word. Uh, but he's referring to it. He, he's referring, telling them, don't you remember, don't you know, according to the Lord's own word. I, I, I told you these things before. And so Paul would have been referring to some kind of sayings of Jesus. Paul didn't hear Jesus teach. Now, I think he communicated with Jesus. Jesus spoke to him. But I don't think in this case, you can say, 
that Jesus sat down and explained eschatology to him. Paul was referring to what Jesus said about eschatology in Matthew 24 or you know, in, in, in Mark or in, in Luke where, where he's talking about the end times. And so if he's saying that to the Thessalonians, he's talking about, he's, that's 52 A.D. And he's already saying in 52 A.D. when he's writing the Thessalonians, according to the Lord's own word, you know it, you've read it from the writings that have been handed to you about what Jesus said. So there are, some people were collecting the oracles of the Lord, what the Lord said. They're just his sayings. Someone writing the historical things. So that's why I've, I like the connection. Again, I don't, I don't have any support for it except you know, a, a few people here and there. But if Matthew was written in 48-50 A.D. and circulated among the churches, that's when Paul could say, according to the Lord's own word, he's referring to Matthew 24. And I've taught that before. But as I researched the timing of Mark, they want to put Matthew after Mark, 70 A.D., 80 A.D., so that they can say Matthew used part of Mark to put this in order or, or to put it right his book. I don't know the answer to that. And again, I haven't really said anything except some things that I, 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 I've been trying to work out. I think John is solid, Luke is solid, I think Mark is solid. I don't know when Matthew was written. And that's important because Mark is going to be used by Matthew or Matthew, Mark, and Luke are using these sources, and we know there's sources over there because Luke says many have already undertaken to write down the things the eyewitnesses told us about the word, and that's before John and Luke and Mark are even written. Now, I will say this, not that it's got any traction, but i got to quit. Augustine, which I don't always agree with Augustine, but you know, once again, you better be ready to, if you're going to say you're going to disagree with Augustine, Matthew, Mark, Luke, you better be ready to be like made into a fool. But uh, Augustine says these books, the, the Gospels, are listed in the order they were written. That's Augustine, which was a popular view at that time, that Matthew was written first, Mark was written second, Luke third, and fourth. Now, I can do this. See, this I can't do this right here i can't have mark being written in 64 and luke being written in 60 61 i can have john being written last 85 so i you know so i've already switched those around so anyway that's what what he's saying so it, it's it's not that important of an issue but it is something that as i as i'm going to get into this i'm going to want to you know what because there's so many similarities who's copying who or what are they copying because you can see and sometimes you, the scholars, you can leave it to the scholars, but sometimes the scholars have a, uh, an agenda. They're already, what they'd say, minimalists or higher critics. They just want to prove that none of this is true, and someone's just passing down legends, and all of a sudden, by the time you follow the scholars and the wrong camp of scholars, by the time they get done teaching you, they've taken away your entire Bible, and it's nothing but dust, and it just was made up. So I like to keep it historical, that's why I like Mark and Peter. You know, Peter dies, Mark writes the stories. I like Luke writing Luke in Caesarea Philippi or researching there. I like John in Ephesus, 85, 90 A.D. Matthew is my problem of, of where does that come in. And if I can put Matthew in 48, 50 A.D., uh, that helps tie things together. But I don't know, and I don't know if we're going to be able to get an answer. I'll try and clean it up. I got some more information on the back. I want to talk about the back page right there, the four major sources. You can read it yourself, but I'll try and refer to that next week. Uh, that tells you, uh, oh, man, there's a great debate right there in point two. And I'll bring that up next week because you are going to, oh, and you're going to, I got to show you this because uh, the old Latin manuscripts have a prologue in Mark with an introductory comment before the Mark. It says, Mark declared, who is called stump-fingered, because he had rather small fingers in comparison with the stature of the rest of his body, he was the interpreter of Peter. Uh, at, I wrote Ager, whatever that means. This would be after. After the death of Peter himself, he wrote down the same gospel in the regions of Italy. Uh, so that's that Mark was called, according to 160, the prologue. In their Bibles, in the, there's, there's the Old Latin, and then there's the New Latin Bible, the Latin Vulgate, 
which, which uh, Jerome wrote in Bethlehem under the order of the Pope. After Jerome lost the vote for the Pope, he left Rome and went to Bethlehem and joined a monastery. He was so upset. He had a temper. And uh, the Pope asked him, because he was very skilled, if he would write, go back to the Greek and the Hebrew and write an updated version of the Latin. And it'd be, it's like replacing the King James with the NIV. Uh, it, it, it was, no one liked it. No one liked it. But it became the standard. It was, the Pope ordered this now, the official Bible. And the old Latin got set aside. Because it had been copied so many times that there was, because they didn't have printing press, they just copied and copied and copied, that there were so many discrepancies that the Pope said, let's just go back and start all over. So Jerome went back and read the Hebrew and translated it. He translated the Apocrypha, put it in there, translated the Greek and put it in there, and had the Latin Vulgate, which is still the Catholic Bible. Today. When you use a Catholic Bible today, it is the English translation of the Greek translation that Jerome made, what was it, 400 B.C. or, or A.D.? I, I, when, when did Jerome live? I'm trying to pull the date out of my head here. Um, 400, that would be, that seems right. That's Augustine's time. I can't. I, uh, but anyway, the Old Latin, the preface, like you've got study Bibles, the preface, the prologue before the book of Mark, called Mark, says, Mark wrote this. He was also called, uh, what it called stump-fingered because he had rather small fingers compared to the rest. That's, that's was the, in the introductory part of the, in the Old Latin, meaning that's why the one of the reasons Pope Price says, okay, let's, let's update this. We don't need personal information about Mark's fingers. Uh, if you want to read something interesting, you can read uh, uh, point two there about Papyrus, Papyrus and the Elder. And uh, is that what is, is there? Okay, I, I'll quit and pray, and we're done. We'll pick this up. Uh, we've probably got two or three more weeks of introduction to get through this, and then we'll go through the book of Mark verse by verse. Father, we do thank you for the chance to look into these things. We thank you for your word. We thank that we have it with us. We ask that we would honor it, that we treat it with respect, and that we would, again, have correct information that we may continue to grow and, and do the things you call us to. We do ask that we would be servants, willing to serve and willing to suffer for your cause and to serve as a good example. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your time.